phrase meant to think deeply about him. And he's begun to share with us this idea, right? We were introduced to a, to a fellow named Melchizedek. And the reality that Melchizedek has become a type, a picture of the priesthood of Christ. In fact, about a thousand years after Melchizedek was on the scene, in Genesis chapter 14, God, speaking uh, through the psalmist, said to his son, You are a priest forever. He said, I have sworn and will not relent. Psalm 110 verse 4. I have sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the writer of Hebrews has been explaining that to us and he's going to continue for a couple more chapters. The beauty and the majesty of having this concept that all that we need is in Christ. Now you remember last time we talked about there was an Old Testament system in place, right? And we're going to discuss that a little bit more. But in that Old Testament system, we said that Old Testament system was perfect. And the law is perfect. But who runs it? We do. Oh, and what's, what's the problem with that? We're flawed, right? We're broken. So what happens to the system? It breaks down. In other words, the priest that, that you might come bring your offering to. Remember we talked about it last time. You realize, you know what, I'm, I'm in sin, I need to bring my offering. And you bring that offering and you come before the priest and you bring that offering to the priest for him to offer. But you have no idea what his day was like. Nor do you know what, where he is in relationship with God. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a couple of characters named Nadab and Abihu, who God smites, uh, takes them down because they bring strange fire into the, into the tabernacle. They're bringing strange fire before the Lord. What does that tell me? They didn't have a right relationship with God. What happens when you bring your offering to a priest who's not in the right place? Is it any different than when you're not in the right place? What did he tell us last week? He said, these priests, they would have to come and bring offerings for themselves and get themselves right with God and then take your offering to help you get made right with God. The system works if your high priest is perfect. The system is flawed because we're flawed, right? So we have need of a high priest. And we've known for a long time that a high priest was coming. In fact, rabbis understood Psalm 110 to be speaking of God's relationship with Messiah, his anointed. And they would read the 110th Psalm over every king, because every king was called what? The Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. When David came to Saul, Saul's a bad king. David comes to Saul, he says, I will not touch what? The Lord's anointed. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. They saw Psalm 110 for the anointed of God, looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment with the Messiah. With the Messiah, that he would be that perfect high priest. He would have an answer to a system that is a type or a picture and was never intended to be our reality. Certainly not forever. Let's take a look. It begins with this idea. What is the extent of his ministry on our behalf? In Hebrews 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the first thing we see, the extent 
of His ministry, of the ministry of Christ, Messiah, of Jesus, in His role as our High Priest? Well, the first thing we see is it involves His salvation. He is able to save. You could chew on that phrase all day long and not exhaust the concept of the reality that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. He's able. You're not able. I'm not able. All we got to do is look at our track record, right? My salvation depends on me. That I am a man in very serious trouble. But the scripture tells me my high priest, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he is able. He is able to save. So exciting to consider that scripture. He is able. Tells us everything we need to know about our ability and everything we need to know about his. Where is our trust? In Jesus Christ. Where is our faith? Where is our hope? In Jesus Christ. Who has accomplished this great work. Not only do we see the certainty that Jesus is the one who is able, but look at the, look at the completeness. Look at how far it goes. He is able to save how far? To the uttermost. To the uttermost. It used to be said, I think it was James Vernon McGee that used to say, he can take you from the guttermost to the uttermost. He can take you where you're at, right? Through the grace of God, and he can bring you to completion. Why? Because he's the one who does it. It's such an important concept for us really to grapple with, because we really do have a tendency to fall back on our own abilities. To fall back on our own works, to, to, in some kind of system, if I do this, then God will do that, right? And there's a lot of teaching like that out there, that, that if you do this or you do that, if you, you send us a, a thousand dollar seed check, then you're sure to get a hundred thousand dollars back, right? I just want to check how many times that actually worked out for the guy who sent the seed check, but the reality is it's Jesus Christ who's able. He is able. He is able, doesn't, it's not on me. It's not about me, it's not through me, it's not for me, and he's able to finish. What does the scripture tell us? If he's begun a good work in you, what's it say? Okay, it doesn't say, if he's begun a good work in you, but, but you know, you don't have your act together enough, you're, you're out of here. What's it say? If he begun a work, what's he going to do? Complete it. If he starts a work, he finishes it. He saves you to the uttermost he's the one that's why it's because of the beauty of god the glory of god that we praise him that we give offering to him that we that we fall on our knees and worship before him if you don't understand the beauty and the and the the glory of what it is he is he has done for us it's it hinders your own ability to worship and praise Because what we value, what we understand, boy, we want to praise that. We want to lift it up. Well, what's the channel through which he brings his salvation? Look at it. Look what it says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, what? Those who draw near to God through who? Him. Those who draw near to... Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except how? Through me. There's one way... To have a relationship with the Father. Now I just want you to think of the pictures. Look in the Old Testament. There was one way for me, an average guy, growing up in the middle of Israel, to have a relationship with God. I had that relationship through 
my high priest. I couldn't just go. I came to the priest. What is Jesus saying? What is he saying when he says, there's nobody who can bring you to the Father but me. I'm the one. All those other things are pictures. We talked about this. You remember. They're types. They're pictures. We don't sit and stare at the picture when the reality is before us, do we? If you're missing a wife or a husband or a child, when that wife, husband, or child shows up, you don't stand there hugging the picture, do you? You put the picture down and do what? You want the reality. You want the reality. The reality is Jesus Christ. How does He save? He saves all those who come through Him. Through Him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And ultimately, we see this incredible confidence. Why? Since He always lives... So how long does he live? Oh, so we got that down, right? He always lives to do what? Make intercession. And we talked about this last time. I I was thankful. I had a a brother send me the video. And I was going to put it up so you guys could watch. Remember the video I told you guys about? And I was going to put it up for you. And um, I don't know. Didn't happen. So you don't get to watch it. But I want to remind you again. This video, and maybe what I'll do is throw it up on, uh, on Facebook on the church site so you guys can see it. But this video, it's, it's um, uh, the Goodometer. Isn't that what it's called? Goodometer? Jonathan? Jonathan's the one who sent it to me. But the idea that is perfect. Now, uh, uh, well, now I'll tell you all about it, and you can watch it and say, that has nothing to do with what he said. But hopefully, I'll do it justice. But the idea is you have all these people waiting in line, right? And they're trying to say, my good works outweighed my, my bad works, right? That's, that's a pretty common view of getting into heaven today, no? A lot of people think that way. A lot of religions are that way. A lot of religions are that way. So they, they come up and each one comes up, you know, and they say, oh, you know, I think I did pretty good. I did a lot of good things. I did a few bad things. I did a lot of good things. They get on the good meter and it goes, you know, bad, and they go get in the bad line. And it goes through three or four people, I don't know, several people, and then you have a guy come up. Big old thick binder. And they're looking at him like, man, you got a lot of problems in that. Because the binder, you know, that's your life. Bad stuff is in there. And he says, yeah, yeah, I, I did a lot of bad things, but you know, I'm the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. And right about then, Jesus walks in. And the guy who I assume is supposed to be, you know, Peter, like at the pearly gates. I don't know. Peter's not really there, by the way, but it's good for the story. So Peter says, oh, Lord, I didn't know he was with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep, he's one of mine. He says, well, we got we to gotta get on the good old meter. And the guy goes to get on it. The guy goes to stand on the scale to weigh it, and Jesus stops him. No. Why? Because he's our intercessor. An intercessor doesn't just mean he prays for us. He stops the guy and he stands on the scale. That's what an intercessor does. He stands for you. That's why you're righteous to God. Because Jesus Christ stands for you. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for you. You're not going to be judged on your rights and wrongs to enter into heaven. Jesus Christ is your past because he stands for you he intercedes he prays he stands in the gap and he stands before us all of that is wrapped up in this verse that says man he's the one who's able to save me to the uttermost 
To the uttermost. Why? Because I've drawn near to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Right? That's the only way. And He ever lives to do what? Stand in the gap for me. To stand on the scale for me. To pray for me. He's my intercessor. He intercedes for me. He is able. But not only does the ministry of the high priest involve salvation, but there's more. It also involves a separation from sin. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So what's he talking about? He's talking about his identification with those that he is able to save. How is it that he identifies with with them? How is it that he identifies? It says it is fitting that we should have such a high priest. It's right that he should be our high priest. Why is that right? Why is that? Well, one of the things I think is his impeccability, which is an old word, which means his his uh, uh, holiness, his sinlessness. Let's look at it. It says, let's look at his position. The first one it says, he is holy, right? Holy. So it's not the, the normal word for holy here. It's a little bit different, but this word speaks of the fact that he is without sin, without sin. Look, 2 Corinthians 5.21, what's it say? For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. He was holy, without sin. Without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit, any, none, zero deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit. First John 3, 5, it says, You know, he appeared in order to do what? To take away sins. To take them away. And in him there is no sin. It's a beautiful picture that John paints in First John. And if we can recognize our position in him, we understand, right? Jesus is standing on the scale. He's standing in front of us. God sees His Son, not my sin. He is perfect, pure. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? He is a great high priest. Beautiful picture of the reality we see in Christ. Why? Because He is without sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He's everything that we need. In John 8, 46, Jesus said, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? They could have convicted him of sin. Every time they brought guys, that they had paid guys to tell lies on them, and they couldn't even do it right. Because He is Holy. He is holy. When we look at his separation from sin, he is holy. Look at his practice. His practice. The next word is the word innocent. It's a kakos. Kakos is uh, evil. We put the, the prefix ah before it, right? Remember, we've talked about this before. A theist believes in God. An ah theist. Atheist says no God. This is akakos. No 
evil, no malice, no guile. It's just not there at all. Look, i got to try to control mine. Uh, do you guys have that problem? Uh, because I got it. It's in me. I got evil. If somebody does wrong, what's the first thing you want to do? Because we're broken and flawed individuals. Somebody does wrong, we want to do wrong back. Right? Somebody hits you, what do you want to do? Hit them back. Somebody yells at you, says something bad about your mama. What do you want to do? Say something bad about their mama. Right? Isn't that how it works? Why? Because we, we have evil, deceit, and guile in us. But he's innocent. That's not even in him. It's not there at all. It's not there at all. Next we see his purity. His purity. What's the next word? He's unstained. Amiantos. Inwardly and morally unstained with anything that could disqualify him. That he had this moral standing that was impeccable. Perfect. Perfect. Literally, utterly unstained. You could not find nothing in him. That was immoral. Nothing. I don't know about you guys. I got that stuff floating around in me all the time. It's in me. What do I got to do about it? I got to submit to Christ. I got to submit to his spirit working in and through me. I got to confess my sin. I got to fight with it. Just like the Apostle Paul, right? That said, I'm fighting all the time. What I should do, I don't do. What I don't do is what I should have done. I'm a mess. But Paul declares, who saves us from this body of death? It's Jesus, my what? High priest. He stands in a gap for me. Man, what a beautiful Savior we have. What a beautiful Savior. Then we see his partnership with sinners. And I don't want us to miss this idea. He, he lays out for us, not only is he unstained, but look, separated from sinners. Separated from sinners. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And I think Paul really wraps it up for us. And we as believers struggle with this all the time. We struggle with it all the time, the, the, the concepts. We get them flipped around backwards and forwards. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he was never like them. Just chew on it for a minute. He's a friend of sinners, but never like them. Always separated from them. Though he might be in their midst, they were never comfortable to the, degree, to the degree that they felt like their sin was okay. Think about a little guy. His name was Zacchaeus, right? When we went through uh, Israel, we got an opportunity to drive in. We, we were going to go to <clears throat> the sycamore tree. You guys know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. So there's like three people singing with me, so apparently we don't all know the song. Anyways, Zacchaeus climbs in a sycamore tree. Now, they, they named the sycamore tree the sycamore tree in Jericho. Nobody has any idea, but at least it's a sycamore tree, and it's in Jericho. So we were going to go there, but there was some uh, dignitary visiting. I don't remember who it was. Anybody remember? The Russian, yeah. Who? I thought he was busy messing up our election. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew he could do that and go to go to Israel at the same time? But anyway, 
We couldn't go to the tree. Now, what happened? Zacchaeus, Jesus is coming through town. Zacchaeus wants to see him, right? So he gets up in a tree. Jesus stops underneath Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come eat at your house today. Now, Jesus, Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's scum. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Why? He's a tax collector. He rips everybody off. He's a little guy. So he's got, he's got short man syndrome, right? You guys ever met people like that? And then... So he's got all this stuff going against him. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. He goes. He eats with him. He subs him. What happened to Zacchaeus? Just being in the presence of the purity of Jesus Christ makes Zacchaeus say, man, I'm going to pay back everybody I ever stole anything from. I'm going to, I'm going to, Zacchaeus' life radically changes. You read about it in the Gospel of Luke. And if you look, there's another story right before Zacchaeus. There's a rich, young ruler who comes to Jesus. Now, he thought he was doing okay. You remember, he goes away sorrowful. Zacchaeus, who's a dirty, filthy sinner. Jesus just being in his presence is enough to make Zacchaeus utterly change his life, right? The Lord says, salvation's come to this house. Salvation's come, not because he did all those things. What, what happened? A radical transformation of his life. Radical transformation of his life from being in the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, man, he is a friend of sinners, but he's separated from the sinners. He was willing to be where they were, sinners of the world. But he was never willing to become like them. We get that messed up. We think, well, you know, we're supposed to be a friend of sinners, so we just want to hang out and party with them and not say a word. And I don't see that. Jesus was never shy about what he thought. No. Jesus was never shy, but it was his beauty, his perfection. And it's just incredible to see this. Well, you know, just so we have clarification, but Paul comes along later and he tells us, hey, there's this sinner in your midst and you guys aren't dealing with him. Throw that dude out of the church. You guys remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, somewhere around there? Throw that guy out of the church. Put him out. What's the deal? I thought we were supposed to be a friend of sinners. Yeah, Paul says, sinners out in the world? Yeah, you, you, I will be all things to all men that I might win. How many? Some, right? I might win some. I might win some. That's out there. But in the church, you don't let a brother stand flopping around in sin like it's okay and not say nothing. Paul says you deal with it in the church. Because in the church, you've already declared Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And how can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Huh? If we can live in sin and we're declaring Jesus with our lips, but we're living in sin, something's lying. You got to pick which one. But something's lying. Because when Jesus was with Zacchaeus, radical transformation. You with me? So if Jesus is with you, there ought to be a radical transformation. As we follow our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So. Man, it's incredible. This is his, his partnership with sinners. But then we see his incomparableness. Because not only does it say that, but look what it says at the end of the verse. It says, and exalted above the, what's the word? Well, exalted above the heavens. How many are there? 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I thought, here's some perfect logic for you. There are three. How do we know there are three? Because Paul, yeah, you guys are getting too smart. We know there's three because Paul said that he was, he knew, I think he's talking about himself. He says there's a man that went to the third heaven. So if there's a third heaven, there had to be a one and a two, right? That's not logical. Seems kind of logical. First heaven, what are we talking about? The atmosphere, second heaven, space, third heaven, presence of God. The presence of God. He says, you're exalted above them all. You are incomparable to anything else you would ever try to compare to Jesus Christ to. You'd never be able to because he is above them all. You and I have not seen heaven. You and I can't even imagine heaven. We can't even begin to think about the things that God has planned for those who love Him. We, we, we can't even, in our wildest dreams, come anywhere close. But here's what I'll tell you. No matter what it's like, no matter what we see, no matter what blessings there are in heaven, Jesus Christ is exalted above it all. And if what you're looking for is something that exists in heaven and not for Jesus Christ, again, there may be a problem with your heart. What do I mean? What do you want to go to heaven for? I want to go to heaven to see Jesus. I got friends there. I got family there. And I may be reunited to those people. But I want to see Jesus. I want to see His face. I want to look in His eyes. The Bible tells me I'm going to have a moment. One moment in all of history where I stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I have one chance and only one to hear from Him. Well done, good and faithful servant. I got one chance. I get to, I get to live this life in such a way. I get to live it one time. And then I got that opportunity. Everyone's going to have an opportunity before Jesus Christ. Everyone will. But on that day, it's too late to say what I would trade to have made different choices, right? I want Jesus, man. I want him. Why? Because he's so beautiful. He's highly exalted above all the heavens. He's, he's, he is everything I'm ever going to need. He is it. He is it. And we, we just got to come to recognize that reality. So what do we see? The extent of his ministry, it involves his salvation. It involves the separation from sin. But also it involves his sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 27. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, look at this phrase. If you ever memorize something, memorize this. He did this once for all. Just once. Once for all when he offered up himself. It involves this sacrifice for sin. It was different than all the other high priests. Why? Because they had to come and offer sacrifices for themselves first. But he's sinless, perfect. So he doesn't do that. What he does, what they did was a picture. He had to keep repeating you know, they say repetition is the mother of learning. Yeah? You know that? So let's say you're not any good at tying hooks when you go fishing. You want to get better? Have Jason tie all your hooks for you. <laughs> no, that's not what you want to do. What do you do? Tie hooks. And the more you tie hooks, what happens? The better you get. What about bow hunting? 
Well, let's say bow shooting, because I'm the most horrific hunter on earth. So, bow shooting. If I want to get better at shooting a bow, what do I got to do? Uh, if I want to get better at singing, what do I got to do? Repetition is the mother of learning. If we just keep doing it over and over again. So what do we see? The priests bringing offerings over and over and over and over to learn what? What are they learning? They're learning that, man, this is not a really great system because I have to keep doing it over and over. What if there was a way to deal with this once for all? Now, Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist looks at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Once for all. One sacrifice paid it all. He doesn't have to offer daily because he's without sin. He doesn't have to do that. It was done once for all. It is sufficient. The atonement accomplishes something. It accomplishes something. It is sufficient and efficacious in those who believe. It is that which brings us into that right relationship with Him. Once for all time, He offered Himself. And it also involves our security. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, that oath, Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Okay? But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Perfect forever. No other high priest. People ask questions all the time. How come you don't have a priesthood? Well, I got a priesthood. My high priest is Jesus Christ. And he don't retire, don't take a sick day. He's not ever going to die. He will always be forever my high priest. He intercedes for me, fulfills that role perfectly. Jesus Christ, the ultimate, He is mine forever. Perfect. All that I need is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So, if we get this idea, the extent of His ministry involved His salvation, separation from sin, uh, it also involved His sacrifice, and it involves our security. He's perfect forever. But then we see the exaltation of his ministry by God. That God exalts him. Look at chapter 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Man, he's beating a drum. And just in case you thought, man, I, I was hoping the high priest stuff would be over. No, there's a whole other chapter. <laughs> Not over. Repetition. Some mother of learning. We want to grasp this concept. So what are we saying? We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. Listen, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. The exaltation of his ministry. First, let's take this idea. What is Jesus doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? Because it is finished. He has done it. It's done. The way has been paved. He has 
done it. But then I also, not only in his position, I want you to see the place. Look what he says. He is a minister in the holy places. Same phrase that you would use in the earthly temple. In the holy places. That's the, the outer court before the holy of holies. So you have the, the court of the priest. Sacrifice takes place. They walk into the holy place. And then the high priest once a year walks back into the back room where the Ark of the Covenant is, the Holy of Holies. It says Jesus is a minister in the holy places, but not on earth. He's a minister in the real place where the true tent is, the tent of meeting, where the true tabernacle is, where the true temple exists. Where? In heaven. In heaven, he is the priest. He fulfills the role, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Not man. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So he's comparing Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ in heaven, in the true tent, in the real tabernacle. The one on earth is a copy. It's a type. It's a picture. Don't love the picture. Love the reality. Love the reality. The true, the true tent. So we compare the two. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts. That word offer in the present tense means a continual offering. Continually bringing offerings. But this one, Jesus Christ, he must also have something to offer. It's interesting, that word's in the aorist tense, means offered once with lasting effect. Something that was offered once. What did we see earlier? He offered himself how many times? Once for all. Once for all. Finished, completed, It is done. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. We're not talking about Jesus as our high priest on earth. We're talking about Jesus as a high priest in the reality, in the true temple. So what is it when we look at the type? When we look at the typology that we have here on earth. Jesus is a picture of the top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? He is our propitiation. What do they call the top of the, of the ark? The hilasterion. The mercy seat. The propitiation. He is our mercy seat. He is also a picture of the box. He's also a picture of the tent. He's also a picture of the veil that went between the holy of holies and the holy place and was the door and was the door outside the outer courts. He is a picture of every implement used in the construction of the temple. He is a picture of the offering. He is a picture of the high priest. You get the point. He is everything. He's everything we need. It's all Him. It's all Him. It's all points to Christ. It's all about Jesus that we can see, that we might understand. You say, Jackie, I don't know about all this symbolism you're using. Well, good. I'm glad you have the question. Look at verse 5. 
They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. See, I didn't make it up. You were wondering, weren't you? He keeps talking about pictures and types. and What's it say? They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. They serve. This, uh, the temple, the picture, it's all a picture. Stop hugging the picture, come to the reality. He's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people. He's saying, man, come to Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of it all. You don't need the old. He come and ushered in the new. The old is good and the old is perfect, but we're a mess. We're flawed. We're broken. We need a perfect high priest who's able to intercede for us and enter, bring us into a relationship with Almighty God. Jesus Christ is able to do that. He is able to save us to the uttermost. Isn't that good news? I think it's good news, man. It says, they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, build it, he was instructed by God saying, listen, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God says to Moses, build it according to the pattern. God gave Moses, when Moses received the law, building plans for the tabernacle, which was a pattern of the heavenly reality. It was always intended as pictures. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All those things happen in the wilderness for our admonition. They're types, pictures, so that we can understand, so that we can comprehend the beauty of all that Jesus Christ is. Because what's the purpose of the book of Hebrews? The excellency of Jesus Christ. That He is everything I need. I don't need another Harley. Don't need the one I got. I need Jesus. I don't need none of the stuff that I have, none of the junk I got, or the junk I'm going to open in next week. <laughs> don't need it. I need Jesus. Amen. That's all I need. That's all that's necessary. Not just Jesus in plus something else. Just Him. And if we can really come to the understanding of the beauty of what we have in Christ. Nothing else will ever glitter like it does now. Nothing else will ever shine like it does now. Everything will pale because it is all incomparable to Him. He is above it all. Over it all. It's incredible, incredible reality. Well, let's think, let's, let's talk about this idea of pictures. In Hebrews 4.11, it says, Let us, therefore, strive to enter the rest, so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. Remember, we talked about it. What was the disobedience? Coming all the way up to the very shores of the river to, to walk into all that God has for you in the promised land, and then to stop and say, No, I'm not coming in. What is... The writer of Hebrews says, look, learn from their example. Don't do that. Rather, come and say, Lord, I want all that you have for me. Because the next time the children of Israel came, they come to the Jordan River and the Lord said to the priests, go out there, carry the Ark of the Covenant, stand in the water. They stood in the water, the water stepped up, right? 
Well, who's the Ark of the Covenant? Jesus. Who's the top of the Ark? Mercy seat. Jesus. Who's our priest? Jesus. All pictures of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is standing in the river, stopping it up, so you can come in and have all that God has planned for you. It's all available through Him. It's all that you just got to follow Him. Just got to go with Him. Jesus said to every one of His disciples, Come follow me. He said to Peter, Hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? A lot of people think a lot of different things, but you remember they just caught a bunch of fish. Peter just went fishing. They got their boat, their nets, all their stuff out there. I always picture it like Jesus just pointing to that stuff. You love me more than all this stuff? Do you love me more than these? Yea, Lord, you know. I phileo. I'm your friend. Peter, do you agape me? Self-sacrificing love. A love that, that you'll die for me. Peter, will you die for me? Lord, you know, I'm your friend. Then Jesus a third time said, Peter, are you my friend? And the Bible says Peter was smitten in the heart because the Lord said the third time, are you my friend? Do you, phileo? Man, Lord, you know all things. You know what Jesus tells him next? Now, Peter, I know that you struggle with how much to love me and follow me, but I started something in you, and I'm going to finish it. And I'm going to take you from where you are to where you want to be. And one day, you will die for me. That's what Peter wanted. When it come down to it, he couldn't do it. He could kill everybody else, but he couldn't, he, he, he couldn't just submit. But Jesus said, one day, you're going to. Well, Peter's a lot like us, right? He looked over at John and said, well, what about him? So Jesus said, what are you worried about him for? What did he say? The most important lines next. You come follow me. You. Stop looking at everybody else and what they got and what they ain't got. And realize that your high priest is so beautiful, majestic, incomparable to anything you can even begin to, to fathom in your mind. And realize that Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the way to the relationship. And he is saying, come, I'm standing in the river. Let's go. Learn from those who have gone before us, those types that lay out before us. Hebrews 9.23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. You didn't offer a lamb on the temple in heaven. What did you offer in the temple in heaven? The blood of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. It's all pictures, all types, all examples. James 5.10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Learn from those who went before you. Learn from those. They weren't some special you know, breed that don't have what you had. 
I used to say to guys, I was in the Marine Corps, and when I went into the Marine Corps, every time I met an old-timer, and we talk about how hard boot camp was, he'd say, uh, I'm from the old corps. You had it easy compared to me. Then about the time I was getting out, I was looking at guys going, look, I'm from the old corps. You guys had it easy compared to me. And I don't believe none of that's true no more, just so you know. But the reality is when we look at what the scripture is laying out for us, what he's saying, consider all those guys. Nothing special about them. They went through the same stuff, same training, same, and they're men like we are. They're women like you are. They're, they're able, just like us. There's nothing special about them. But when Elijah prayed, heaven stopped. Didn't rain for seven years. But Paul said, hey, he's just a man like you. Just like us. Learn. See the pictures. See the examples of those who go before us. Second Peter 2.6 If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Look, the ungodly, the unsaved, only have one fearful expectation to fall into the hands of the living God. What is it we're saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God. For you are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He bore that wrath. He intercedes for me, stands in the gap. So that I don't see that reality. In Colossians 2.17 it says, These are shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He's the reality. Everything else is a picture. He's the reality. Hebrews 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You can never be made complete, perfect. You're always going to have one more sacrifice to have to give. But we come to the reality, Jesus Christ, who offered himself once for all, was able to say, it is finished. Then look at Hebrews 8 verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent. So he has a more excellent ministry. More excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So he has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant. What's that better covenant? What's it called? The new covenant, right? The new covenant. We're going to see that in the, in the, in the upcoming chapters that we continue to study. He has a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. Look what he's talking about, Jesus. More excellent ministry, better covenant, better promises. He's the reality. Everything else was the picture. It's time. It's time. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. It's time to repent and believe. Because he has made a way. He is the only way. There ain't some other way. Jesus, period. 
Not Jesus plus, just Jesus. He is the way. Hear the call. The same things that he was saying when he walked on earth. You, come and follow me. It's our prayer that that's what you want to do. Come and follow him. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come before you, Lord, we just pray that you would move in this place by your spirit, God. That you call all men everywhere to repent and believe in the beauty, the incomparable excellence of Jesus Christ. Lord, that all men everywhere would would repent, turn, change, leave that old life, the old promises. Because those old promises, Jesus has better ones. He has better promises. He has a better covenant. For he is able to save to the uttermost. And he is everything we need. God, I pray in this season that you, Lord Jesus, would be the reason of the season. That we would recognize that you are worthy of our praise. That you are worthy of all glory. That you are worthy of the song of the redeemed sung to you in Revelation chapter 5. God, that you are able to open the seals, that you are able to save, that you are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. God, you are everything that we need. Lord, I pray your spirit would move from this place. I pray that as Jesus Christ is exalted, that you would call men unto yourself. That men everywhere would bow the knee now. Confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And they shall be saved. God, I pray that you might work, that you might move. And that you would give us eyes to see your incomparable worth and value. Everywhere we look this season, God, may we see you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.